February 25th, 2017, in Mauritius, training your children in chanting Japa. <coughs> so we're going to be looking at training children in chanting Japa, and these, um, these papers that I've given you were designed for school teachers, not parents. So you're going to find some things in there that you say, what, huh? I don't have a school. So some of the things here are applied to a group of students, not just to one. So we're basically going to go through and talk about what we have here, and then we can have, hopefully we'll have some time for questions and discussion. So I want you to turn to the very last page first. <coughs> to the summary. What's our purpose in getting children to chant Japa? Why are we engaging our children in chanting Japa at all? What are we trying to achieve? Whenever you're trying to do anything in this world, you want to have what in Sanskrit is called a sankalpa. You want to have a goal. It's only when you have a goal. In education, we talk about having a learning objective. It's only when you have a goal that you can assess whether or not what you're doing is what you want to be doing. So here we're suggesting that we want the children to get a spiritual taste for chanting Japa. We want them to have that positive emotional experience with Japa. We are not trying at a young age to get the children to take a vow that they're going to chant a certain number of rounds. If they do that, that's wonderful. But that's not our aim. Our aim is simply that they say, wow, I like chanting Japa. That, that's really it. That's all we're trying to achieve for children. I like chanting Java. I want to chant Java. If they have that, then they're much more likely when they get older to say, okay, I'd like to start chanting a certain number of rounds. I'd like to consider getting initiated and so forth. And we've seen that if we focus not on the positive emotional experience of Java, but if we focus just simply on the mechanics or simply on the habit, we can end up giving the kids a negative emotional experience. And I thought for some time, why is chanting japa the most difficult thing for most of us to get our children to do? And in thinking about that, I realized that every other service in Krishna consciousness has some sort of a sense-pleasure component. Kirtan is generally beautiful music. Dancing is, is physically satisfying. Taking prasadam, obviously, is enjoyable physically. Discussing the philosophy, reading the books, is very intellectually stimulating. Doing meaningful service is also very satisfying just for my sense of self. So practically everything that we do in Krishna consciousness has some aspect of it where it's also materially satisfying. 
materially attractive. But Java is not. Unless and until one comes to an advanced level of practice. And it was interesting, one of my devotee friends recently recommended that I read a couple books on Buddhist meditation. I'm not sure if you're all aware, but meditation is becoming a very popular thing in the world today. It's getting to the point that people have the mood that if you're a well-rounded, responsible person, you spend some of your day every day meditating, just like you spend some time exercising. Now, not everybody may exercise, but everyone knows it's a good thing to do or to exercise, to eat healthy, to meditate. It's at the point where Google Calendar recently released a new feature where you could set daily or weekly or monthly goals for yourself. And they were in different categories. Taking care of myself, starting a project, about five or six different categories. And the taking care of myself, one of the top four things was meditating. And meditation in the world is being owned now by the Buddhists. Just like the impersonalists started owning kirtan. Right? So what's happening is people are associating meditation with Buddhist meditation. One of the things I'd like to do, if Prabhupada uh, allows me and empowers me, Krishna allows, is I'd like to start really developing more and more for the public an idea of theistic mantra meditation as a counterpart to this very void, very voidist, because the goal of Buddhist meditation is to realize that you don't exist. So they say, become the observer and then have the observer disappear, and, and you become nothing. It's quite interesting. Anyway, these books I was reading about, about Buddhist meditation, they're, they're bestsellers. Uh, the person who wrote them instituted meditation as a daily practice for all Google employees. Just imagine. So he was saying that at a certain point of meditation practice, the mind goes into goodness. As you know, Buddhism came from the Vedas, so they use a lot of Sanskrit terms and so forth. It says the mind goes into a state of goodness at which you feel great peace and great joy. And you achieve material detachment. And he said the problem is that that only happens after sustained practice. It doesn't happen in the beginning. And therefore, in the beginning, it's hard to get people to stay motivated because they're not getting some immediate feedback. And so if they're not getting some very quick reward system from what they're doing, uh, they may stop doing it. And I thought we're really running into a very similar problem with our own Vaishnava meditation, which is Japa. Japa is, is very much meditation. Japa is not pure time. Japa is really Prabhupada talks about Japa is smarana. Japa is meditation, it's jhana. So we may run into the same problem that although when you first start chanting Japa, Krishna may really give you a, a big reciprocation, that it's, it takes some time to control the mind. And during that time, it may feel to people like it's just boring, or I know one devotee who said, I stopped chanting my rounds because it became just something else I had to do. It just became another burden to me. This is something I, I check off on my list of something I have to do. So this is our difficulty with getting children to chant job. We don't want them to see it as some kind of chore or something that's meaningless or something that's just mechanical. 
mechanical. And I'd say the unfortunate thing is that for many of our adult devotees, that's exactly what Japa is. And so therefore, I've started off here, my first part of this program, is before we work on your children's japa, what about our own japa? And, sorry about that. So, it's very difficult to inspire somebody to do something that we don't feel a lot of inspiration about. So the first thing that we want to look at is, why am I chanting japa? Now, if you're not chanting Java, that's something to look at also. Why am I not chanting Java? Is it because it became simply a chore or something empty? My day got too busy. My day got filled up with other stuff. And devotee write me recently, I don't have any time for Java. You know, I wake up at 5.30 in the morning and it's go, 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 go until 8.30 at night. You know, we fill our day up with busyness, and then we say, okay, I'm too busy to chant Java. So if any of you are not chanting a Java, or you're not chanting the full 16 rounds, you want to think about, you know, what is my relationship with Java. But for those of us who are chanting 16 rounds, and have been doing it for day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, we can ask ourselves, why am I doing this? Am I doing this simply because Shil Prabhupada said to do it? Am I doing it because I made a promise? You know, what role does my java have in my life? So I have some reflections here that I've written down, how it's our essential practice. And of course, we, we say that, but to what extent do we believe that? To what extent is it my own essential practice? Now, of course, it's interesting, Srila Prabhupada in the Nectar Devotion said that each devotee should perform these 64 angas according to their personal taste. Since some people are more attracted to deity worship, some to chanting, etc., etc. I mean, I have a god sister who told me that as soon as she joined ISKCON, she said, oh, I like to chant. And within a couple months, she was chanting 40 rounds a day. So you find some people who really, really enjoy japa, but for other people, their main link to Krishna consciousness might be their deity service, it might be the reading of the Bhagavatam, it might be cooking, or so many other things that for each of us we might feel this is my essential link to Krishna consciousness. So we want to reflect honestly, uh, honestly, what role does japa have in my relationship with Krishna? In what way is my japa an essential part of my relationship with Krishna? Why am I chanting? Our lifeline back to Godhead. Now again, this is our espoused philosophy. But do I really believe that? Is that why I'm chanting? Do I see this as my most essential uh, part of my relationship to attain back to Godhead? The most important instruction of the spiritual master now that's just an interesting and objective fact. Srila Prabhupada writes this in the Chaitanya Charitamrita that the most important instruction of the spiritual master is to chant 16 rounds. And if you think about it for about a minute or two, you'll see that that's the only Anga of Bhakti that Prabhupada had us take a vow about. The four regular principles are not vows of Bhakti. Right? They don't have anything to do with bhakti. 
you could be following all four regular principles to be a demon. Correct? I mean, there's nothing to do with bhakti. They really have to do just with coming to higher modes of nature. So the only vow that we took that has to do with the angas of bhakti is 16 hours of japa. We did not take vows to attend Mangalarti. We did not take vows to read the Bhagavatam. I know we had some Iskand gurus who done that. One of them was an Acharya here in the old Zonal Acharya days who made his disciples vow to read Prabhupada's books for one hour a day as part of his initiation vows. But Prabhupada didn't do that. So that must mean that Prabhupada thought that our 16 vows was the most important instruction. It was the only aspect of bhakti that he made us take a vow about. Isn't that interesting? Just think about that for a minute. And then I wrote something here a little poetic, I suppose. The underlying melody in the symphony of all devotional activities. I hope you excuse my, my poetry there. So you know, in, in a symphony, there's a kind of repeating melody. And if we take the, the Hare Krishna mantra, it is like the underlying essence of everything that we're doing in bhakti. Whether we're doing deity worship, whether we're offering our food, whether we're reading the books. And again, why would we why would we say that? And the potential, again, I wrote this for school teachers. I, I never made an adaptation for parents. I wrote the most important part of the school day. And I would say the most important part of our day and the life and soul of devotional service. Well, I'm going to go right back to my father and that time with me in the morning. And at least for me, and this may not resonate for you, at least for me, my japa time with Krishna is just like that time I spent with my father. You know, my, it was interesting because my mother's relationship with me was very different. My mother's relationship with me was she would take me to places that she considered exciting or worthwhile for me, which I didn't necessarily think were exciting or worthwhile for me. When she would break, we lived, I grew up in New York City, in Manhattan, right in uh, uptown Manhattan. And so regularly I was going to different art museums and opera and theater. And I remember I liked going to puppet shows. But I didn't always like going to opera and art museums. And uh, they took me to Europe when I was six. And I remember looking at all the ruins in Rome. And I, I distinctly remember one day saying, no more ruins, I don't want to go to anywhere in ruins. So my relationship with my mother was mostly like that. That uh, she would take me to very educational things, you know, cultural things. <laughs> and things of that nature, not necessarily things that I enjoyed or that I wanted to do. And that was, that was mostly the, the relationship with me. Whereas my father's relationship with me was just being with me. Being with me, playing games with me. Uh, and I see Japa as very much just being with Krishna. This is how I personally understand it. Again, this may not resonate with you. I see that the other things I'm doing for Krishna, and although I'm certainly with Krishna, especially when I'm doing my puja every morning, I'm certainly with Krishna when I'm reading the Shastra, I still feel more like the things I'm doing for Krishna or about Krishna, but that when I'm chanting Japa, it's just my time with Krishna. It's basically my time alone with Krishna. And that I saw just like my father built a relationship with me by spending time with me. 
Or I remember one time, my husband saying to me, you know, we were, the only time we're together is in the morning program. We're just, we're both so busy. We're never spending any time together. So we made a time, I think it was 8 or 8.30 to 9, 9.30. It was one hour every evening. But we would just have time together. It was when, you know, he ran a business. It was when he closed his business for the day. And I would serve him his prasadam. Sometimes we'd go to the post office. But we didn't try to have that as a time to do something. We weren't trying to do something, but just to be together. And in fact, with all of our relationships, if we never spend time just being with somebody, even if we're doing something with them, but even the thing we're doing with them is mostly an excuse to be with them. Even if you're going with your buddy to play volleyball or tennis or something like that, you're going to be with your buddy. And you don't even have to talk to each other much. Just the fact that you're spending time together. And frankly, if we don't spend any time with somebody, it's hard for that person to believe that we like them. If you're just doing something for people, and particularly I see men have this tendency that they just do things for their family, they're working for their family, they're giving money to their family, but they may not spend time with their family. They may not actually have time for spending just with their family. You know, reading your kids' books, playing games with your kids, eating with your family. It's these kinds of activities that build relationships. And I see the japa is that situation for us with Krishna. Here, Krishna, I'm just with you. So that needs to be examined first before we try to chain, train a child or anyone else in japa. We really need to examine what is japa for me. Now, I should say one other thing in this connection. Reading these books on Buddhist meditation kind of opened up my awareness to something that I hadn't been aware of before. And that is that a lot of what we achieve through our Krishna conscious practice can also be achieved through any kind of meditative or contemplative practice, even an impersonal or avoidance one. And I was kind of surprised at some of the positive effects they were getting through this Buddhist meditation, where they meditate on things like their breath. You know, this author was saying, after 20 years, he could fix his mind on his natural breath for two hours without deviating. And a lot of what he described as the benefits of meditation were just right out of Bhagavad Gita, where Krishna is talking about being equal poised, uh, seeing that you're the observer, that you're not really doing anything, coming to the mode of goodness. And it was kind of surprising for me. I thought, wow, we're getting all these kind of side benefits from chanting Hare Krishna, that we come to the mode of goodness and that our mind becomes steady and peaceful in goodness. But if we have those as our goal, then we're basically materialistic. If, you know, if my purpose in being with you is because being with you makes me feel happy and peaceful, then it's not really about you, but it's about the experience that I get from you. I had some very interesting discussions with uh, one of my, my teenage granddaughters on this topic. 
that to what extent do we deal with other people just because we want that person to give us a certain kind of experience rather than we're with that person because we just really like being with that person. You know, psychologists have analyzed what love is. I don't know if anybody can analyze what love is. I mean, Rupa Goswami has the whole Bhakti Goswami to Sindhu trying to analyze what love is. But psychologists analyzing love is saying, when you find someone fascinating, when you also find that person to be of value, this we notice uh, in the idea of separation. That as soon as you feel separated from the person, you feel feel Krishna is so valuable, the world becomes empty without him. And also that there's a feeling of dependency. That I can rely on this other person, and this other person can rely on me. They have my back, you can say, and I have their back. Then when you put those three things together, you get love. Anyone in them by themselves is not necessarily love. I could value you, but if I don't find you fascinating, and if I don't have some mutual dependence, it's not love. And I can find somebody fascinating, but if I don't value them, and have some mutual dependence, it's love. So in our job, though, we're really trying to establish this relationship of love that we should find Krishna fascinating, that we feel separation from Krishna, Prabhupada really emphasizes. I think for most conditioned souls, we don't even notice Krishna's not there. Oh yeah, Krishna's, oh yeah, Krishna's. I'm not seeing Krishna, or to speak of uh, falling apart because he's not there, and uh, depending on Krishna. So we really want to look at this with our japa. Not that we're chanting japa just to get an experience. Not that I'm chanting japa just because I want to feel peaceful and happy. I, in, uh, in my travels, I met one woman who chants 150 rounds minimum every day. A very unusual lady. And she, this woman was literally glowing. And literally, she was glowing. And uh, a couple interesting things I found about meeting her. One was that she was getting a lot of criticism from her devoted friends that she didn't spend enough time studying Bhagavatam because she was spending all day chanting. So I told her she didn't need to worry about it. I said, if you want to study the Bhagavatam, maybe you can just sing some Bhagavatam verses during the day. So she started doing that. But the other thing that struck me was when I asked her why she wanted to chant all the time. And she said, because, she just, she said it like this, she said, because it's so peaceful. And I, in, in, in thinking about that, and maybe there's more to her chanting than she didn't reveal to me. I'm not a close associate. So perhaps she was just telling me something without going deeply into her relationship with the whole world. But I thought, you know, the voidists and the impersonal meditators are going to hit the same thing. They're going to hit that mode of goodness. Wow, peace. Wow, joy. And it might not actually be spiritual. That was kind of, you know, when I thought about it later, it might not be spiritual. She might be just dealing with Satvagun, the highest level, the higher levels of Satvagun. So we do want to be careful in that regard. There was a Back to Godhead article uh, published 
where the devotees were quoting non-devotees talking about their experiences with chanting Hare Krishna. There was two or three back to Godheads that were run by a particular devotee. And he tried to change the whole mood back to Godhead to be more for a non-devotee audience. And these people were just saying things like chanting makes me feel really peaceful, chanting gives me a great start to my day, chanting gives me clarity and mental focus, and Prabhupada was curious. And there's this conversation where Rameshwar says to Prabhupada, Prabhupada, we thought something was better than nothing. Prabhupada said, no. So we do want to be very careful that the sub-benefits from proper chanting, which basically are sattva-gun. And, and sattva is really nice, especially in Kali Yuga, if you can be a sattva It's a very nice thing. It is. And Krishna tells Uddhava, if you can't be uh, in pure consciousness, be in sattva good. But we shouldn't be chanting for the experience of sattva. Sattva good is amazing. You have clarity of consciousness. You see things clearly. You see that you're the observer. You feel tremendous peace and tremendous joy and tremendous detachment. Not controlled by the material urges. But it's still a me consciousness. It's still material. So we want to have our japa about a personal, loving relationship with a personal, loving person. Just imagine if somebody was hanging out with us just because of how we made them feel. Instead of they're hanging out with us because they really like us. Okay, now examining our own japa technically, mechanically. So that was first an examination of our japa from a philosophical, an emotional, a connection, a bhakti mood. Then examining our japa mechanically. How steady and regulated are we with our japa? We don't want to ask our children to do something that we're not doing. If my japa is a little bit here, a little bit there, up and down, back and forth, one day 16, one day 12, or one day focus, one day not, here and there, up and down, and then I'm going to ask my child to sit down and chant japa every day, at this time in this place, the child's probably, especially if it's our own child who lives with us and knows what we're doing, we probably is going to work. How fast or how slow do we chant? Just a general examination of our java. Am I fingering my beads correctly? Um, am I, is my pronunciation clear? This morning, uh, during java time, I was sitting outside the temple room and some uh, one of the gentlemen, well, I have no idea who it is, so I really, I really honestly don't know who it is. I don't know who most of you are, and I only saw the Prabhu's back. But his java was just awful. The Pujaris always know who chants for Java because they, when they're dressing the deities, they can hear the people in the temple. Anyways, Java's like, so and, and I'm just So I wasn't going to say anything to him. I mean, I, I had the experience of saying to people, do you know you're chanting Rama, 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 Rama? I am not. Okay. Is our pronunciation clear? Do I say the whole mantra? Am I skipping parts of the mantra? Am I double saying the mantra? 
Am I easily distracted? Do I have, you know, Japa talking? And our Detroit Temple One reporter, I came and participated in our morning program. And after Tulsi Puja, she walked up to me, she said, is this your official talking time? And when I was in the Temple North Carolina, the Temple President at that time, now he's a GBC there, your Krishna Swami. If anybody talked to him in Java, he would give them the evil eye, you know, just so you know, should... Japa talking, Japa talking, Japa talking. That's kind of like chatting with someone on the computer while you're simultaneously writing an email. Um, are we having a problem with sleep? And do we have a, a, a what is our proper attitude? Now, I didn't put it here, uh, and I'm not going to put it here, but I do have some other seminars on chanting Japa in general. I have one on liberation through sound and one on attentive chanting, where I really go into how to do chanting as a meditation. And Shiva Prabhupada's instructions on how we should chant Japa. And I would say that it would be very wise for us to understand these for ourselves before we go teaching Japa to somebody else. Otherwise, we could be teaching them something wrong. So I didn't make any printout of this. Um, if there's a great demand, perhaps we could do that. I don't know if we have facility to print anything by tomorrow. It's the weekend, everything's closed. And we could do it. Okay, so if, if people are really interested, we could just have particular people who are interested, we could just give your name, and then I'd have to get your email. And then I could send you the file, and we could just print only for the people who are interested. But I, I have a series of quotes where Shri Prabhupada talks about what we should be doing in our japa. And I, I found that many devotees are surprised by these instructions. That somehow or other, many of our leaders seem to instruct the devotees wrongly. It's something that I feel very uh, sorry about. Then Prabhupada will say that as soon as we chant Hare Krishna, we should feel the presence of Krishna. And as soon as we feel the presence of Krishna, immediately we can remember his talks with Arjuna or his killing the demons with the cowherd boys and like that. And we remember the form of the Lord. And he would always use the just here as a second best. He'd say if you can't do that, if you can't feel the presence of Krishna, if you can't remember Krishna's activities, then just try to hear the mantra. And I find many times we tell people just hear the mantra and don't remember Krishna's form or activities. Right, so that's, that's quite the opposite of Srila Prabhupada's instructions. Srila Prabhupada also says, chanting Hare Krishna means you make a diamond throne for Krishna in your heart and you see him there. He says you imagine you go to the diamond throne, you bathe his feet with Ganga and do the water, you decorate him and so forth. He says that if you do this wherever you go, you become the same person. So our chanting Hare Krishna is a very deep theistic meditation. It is a time being with Krishna, the person. So right, before we teach the children, these are the things we're looking at. We're looking at our own philosophical, emotional view, our understanding of Japa, and what is our particular practice. All right, now we're going on to chanting Japa with the children. And again, I've worded this for a school teacher. So I have a, a, I guess I should say first that when I first became a Gurukul teacher, my first service was going through the morning program with the children. 
So it was a group pool where we didn't have an ashram, but the children had to attend the morning program. They had to attend from Mangalarti. And I was the teacher from 4.30 until 9 o'clock in the morning. Uh, however, I didn't receive any kind of instruction or guidance from anybody about what to do. So I had to kind of come up with my own system. And what I was surprised about is that when I would talk to other Gurukul teachers, that some of them thought my systems were great and some of them thought my systems were terrible. And I came to the conclusion after some years that it wasn't a particular system or a particular mechanics, but it was more about relationship. It was more right going back to that relationship of love and trust. So I have, you'll see that I have often more than one suggestion here, and please don't take these things as some sort of absolute shastra. Take them as my own experience and as guidelines, as some ideas to get you started in your own thinking. I can't emphasize strongly enough, you've got to do what works for you and your child. What works for me and my child, or me and my students, may not work for you and your child or children. You cannot just copy-paste somebody else's life into your life. So please try to get the principles and the essence from this rather than just copy-pasting the details. Okay? It's really, really, really important. Okay, so I have two different suggestions here. One is you simply sit down with your child and you chant Java together. Now, I would suggest that it be at a regular time and place, if at all possible. The other suggestion is you don't just immediately go into Java. Just like in some temples, they just start chanting. In other temples, they read something from one of Prabhupada's books. Often, they'll read something about Java. In many temples, they recite the Shikshastika. So they'll do some sort of preparatory prayer or some sort of preparatory reading. So you could do it one way or the other. If you do something preparatory, I would suggest that it be short. Uh, this one temple I've been in where their preparatory stuff goes on for about 40 minutes. So... You might want to read something about the Holy Name, explain something, and some practical instruction. I would suggest that most of the stuff should go on at another time, and not during the Japa time. But you can have a couple minutes. If you want to take just very, very brief, read something about chanting, or discuss something, but, but don't get into it too much, is my suggestion. And keep a light and happy atmosphere. And I was also, it was interesting for me to see that this Buddhist suggested the same thing. And I wrote this a decade before in his book. But he was saying that because it takes some time to realize the results of meditative practice, that you want to try to have it happy from the beginning so that you're likely to do it. So even on an external basis, keep it light and happy, which is also relates to those positive emotional experiences. You don't want to make job as, okay, this is our meditation time. Chant Japa, seriously. You know, come on, forget it. Not only are you dealing with children, but Krishna is a child. He doesn't get older than 15 and three-quarter years. At least in Vrindavan. He doesn't even quite make it to 16. 
you're spending time with Krishna. You're not spending time with an old man with a beard who's saying, you go to heaven and you go to hell. It's not the person you're hanging out with. Okay? So, for the sake of all the children involved in your japa, Krishna and the children in your room, keep inviting him. Uh, so, that it's best to have a special time and place and seating arrangements for japa. Basically, as soon as you do that, then the children know, okay, at this time and place, that's what we do. Just like most of us have a time and place for taking prasad. I mean, some families don't. They eat everywhere and anywhere in their house. But I think, and I visited some families like that, something I do not find a pleasant experience. But in, in most families, they have a particular place where people eat. And it's a particular time, and you know when you go there, it's time to eat. And most of us have a particular place to sleep. So it's nice to have a particular place to chant japa, that you know when you go, the children know when we go here, this is what we're going to do. Okay, at a particular time. Okay, now you're talking about having a group of children. Should they sit next to you or not? I would suggest, especially if you're training children in japa or they're young children, that they should sit next to you. Then I always had a japa circle. But you know, I was chanting japa with between 15 to 30 children. And you know when you do that, everyone's going to look at you, you know that, right? They just will, it's just what it is. Don't pay any attention to this one. Just, just leave it, just, just, it won't stay, it'll just blow up in two seconds, it's all right. Thank you. Okay. Don't pay any attention to Radhavati walking across the room. Uh, one thing I should mention is that chanting with children can be a challenge to your own job. I just imagined that I had this circle of 15 to 30 children that I was supervising for Java and still chanting my own Java. We're going to talk about this a little bit tomorrow with Sadhana for parents. Uh, but I found that Krishna was very kind to me to try to be meditative with my own Java while training other people to meditate on their own Java. So I read here that some children can only fix their mind if they're right next to the adult. And you, you've got to see this with your own kid. You know? If your kid's on the other side of the room, are they just going to play? Do they need to be right next to you? Or do they want their own space? And I, I would gauge this by their own behavior. If they say, I don't want to sit right next to you, I want to sit across the room, and you see that they're chatting nicely, leave it alone. And if they're not, say, you know, I think you need to sit next to you. Okay, and I just, the bottom note here is, I think, important. And I say that some young pupils who have extreme difficulty even remembering the Maha Mantra for months may eventually become lovers of the Holy Name. And it's something that I saw as a Guru teacher. That, you know, you can't rush to judgment about children's long-term relationship with chanting Hare Krishna. That some of my students who now, you know, chant Hare Krishna most of the day, every day, as their main service. We're not necessarily in that mood when I first started training them at the age of five. So you have a long-term view here. Don't, don't get impatient or 
uh, have very high expectations in the beginning. Again, you want to have an atmosphere just your goal is that they think Chani Hare Krishna is fun. Okay, so what are you trying to do during Japa time? You want to make sure that they're saying the mantra clearly. I have a note here about the Panchatattva mantra that there's one purport in the Chaitanya Charitamrita where Prabhupada says to chant the Panchatattva Mahamantra before the Hare Krishna mantra. Prabhupada never did that or instructed that in regards to Japa. You'll not hear that on Prabhupada's Japa tape, right? Do you hear on Prabhupada's Japa tape, Panchatattva mantra? If you see videos of Prabhupada training devotees to chant Japa, you do not find anything of the Panchatattva mantra. Uh, that instruction is clearly having to do with kirtan. So, I know that many devotees have taught that with Japa, uh, but I would uh, humbly and, and lovingly suggest, don't teach that to your children as a rule. Uh, ISKCON has been criticized by other branches of the Bodhimat for concocting Japa because of this. I don't mind if we get criticized for something that's good, but if we get criticized for something that we actually concocted, then something will be So you want to make sure they're pronouncing the mantra clearly, so that may take some effort on your part, and making sure that they're chanting one mantra for each bead if they use beads. That means they need to have their beads out of their bead bag. So at least for young children who are being trained in Japa, I, if they want to use beads, then they need their beads out of their bead bag. I want to watch that they're actually saying one mantra per bead, and then they're saying the whole mantra. After all, this is when their habits are getting formed, and I don't want them to have to form bad habits. You know, once bad habits are formed, they're very hard to unform. Then how to finger your beads, to finger them like this, and not like this, and the way Prabhupada taught was for the first half of the mantra to go Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, then keep your fingers still for Hare Rama, Hare Rama, 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 Rama. So that was how specifically how Sri Prabhupada taught it. And not to cross over the head beat. So you start at one side, go all the way around, then turn around and go the other way. So you want to make sure the children are actually doing that, that mechanics correctly. And then you want to help the children also to get a comfortable speed. So some people will find that their mind wanders if they're too slow. Some will find their mind wanders if they're too fast. We want to help the children to get a comfortable speed. One reason I find that children will say they don't like to chant Japa is that it takes them so long. I, I've had this kind of feedback from some of our kids. They'll say, you know, it, it just it takes me five hours to finish 16 hours. It's just too much for me. So you may want to work with them on how they can chant clearly uh, with proper speed. Then uh, also how to breathe when they're chanting. So how to breathe so that they're not swallowing the words and also that they're not losing a lot of time with breathing. Make sure there's no distractions. Don't have any toys in the area. Don't have a computer or phone in the area. Get, get anything out of your Japa area that may be a distraction. I was just thinking this morning how in this neighborhood the only sounds you hear are the birds and the rustling of the trees in the wind. It's only once every few hours I hear a motor. Now, maybe only three or four times a day I hear a motorized vehicle and I hardly ever hear even people talking. You hear the chanting from the temple, but just birds and the trees rustling. And I was thinking how Lord Shiva, 
where he's meditating. What's interesting about his tree? Anybody know? Lord Shiva's tree. This is from the fourth canto Bhagavatam. There's no what? There's no birds. There's no birds in Lord Shiva's tree. Because he doesn't want anything distracting him from his meditation. So he gets rid of all the birds. So I don't think we're going to get rid of our birds. But uh, it's already such a peaceful, so nice. Do all of you appreciate what you have here? I don't know. You know, maybe you all live here and just it's just what it is. You know, we get conditioned to what it is. The temple with these beautiful original oil paintings and this peaceful place by the ocean with the ocean breezes and fresh coconuts and quiet. And, you, know, you can't become Christian conscious here, right? Amazing, but you want to have. Uh, you don't find this very many places on the, on the whole planet. Very seriously, I mean, I have a room at my son's house in Hawaii, and everyone thinks, "Oh, Hawaii!" But this is nicer. Don't don't tell them this again. So, although I heard probably said Hawaii was more peaceful. But anyway, you want to remove all distractions. You want to remove distractions. Don't try chanting Hare Krishna in the middle of your toy room. And don't interrupt Japa time to give instructions. Have it be meditation. You can give instructions before, give instructions after. And then no force physically or psychologically. No force. Now, can you have a Japa time? Yes. Okay, just like you have a meal time. You have a meal time where you expect your children to eat. I hope you don't force them to eat. You may encourage them to eat. I hope you don't force them to eat. But you do have a meal time. So it's perfectly fine to have a family japa time or if somehow you can't get the uh, cooperation of your spouse it could be just a parent and child japa time so you can have a regular daily or if you can't do it daily it could be weekly it could be every saturday morning or every saturday and sunday morning or it could be every morning it could also be by the way in the evening could be every evening. You can have a regular Japa time where you expect your child to sit down and chant Japa. But no force. No force. And we'll get to this more in, in a moment. But it shouldn't be even subtly. No, as we say, guilt trips. Right? No, no, nothing at all where the child is feeling that you're trying to to impose your will on them. Actually, in spiritual life, one of the worst things to do is to try to impose my will by force on another being. Now, we have to do that to some extent with children. We must, especially with little, 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 little children. You know, when they can't even move, you just pick them up and put them someplace. And even when they can move, you may just pick them up and put them someplace. I don't want to go to the 
store. Sorry, I'm not leaving you in the house by yourself. You're going to the store. And you just pick them up and put them in the car. Yes? Or you just pick them up and put them in their bed. They like it or they don't like it. It's too bad. So, you know, we, we definitely do this to some extent with children. You have to. You have to say, you're going to school. I don't need to go to school. I'm sorry, you have to go to school. I don't need to go to school. We don't, we don't say, I hope you don't say, oh, it's okay. <laughs> I mean, I have met a few parents like that, but I don't relate to that at all. Like, you don't want to go to school today? It's fine. <laughs> So, but at the same time, we don't want our children to feel that they're being forced. We, we don't want to set up a situation where I'm imposing my will upon them. And, and if you're doing that regularly, and this is beyond the scope of what we'll be discussing this weekend, but if you're doing that regularly, I, I would really suggest that maybe you read some books or take some courses on parenting in general. So if the way that you're getting your child to do everything is by forcing your will on them, if it's a battle of ego and it's a battle of will for everything, for them brushing their teeth, for them going to bed, for their eating a meal, for their going to school, then there's something fundamentally wrong with how you're dealing with them. As I said, that, that's really beyond the scope of what I'm going to get into on this weekend. And I, that's, a, that's a mundane thing. That's not ultimately a spiritual thing. And I think that there, there's a lot of good books out there on parenting, a lot of good courses that can teach you how it's not a battle of wills. And the kind of things that I've said to children when they really disagree with me is, look, I hear what you're saying. You know, I understand what you're saying. You're saying this and that. But I'm sorry, you're my responsibility. And this is the way that I want it to be done. And, and I'm sorry. If you can't agree, you're going to have to go with my way because I'm the one taking care of you. But that's very different than just, you've got to do it. Uh, so you certainly don't want this mood. You can have a job of time, you can have a set job of time, your child's expected to chant Joppa, but you don't want a mood of, I, you are chanting Joppa because I am forcing or imposing my will upon yours, and I am trying to override your free will with my will. Okay, looking at Joppa etiquette and respect. So the children should be sitting, not wandering around, not lying down. Uh, if you have a long job of time, they can spend part of the time walking. If it's a short job of time, it should be sitting, not putting things in your mouth. Um, I suggest starting job button no earlier than age five. Uh, that based on the idea that Gurukul will start at age five and then, therefore we would have Jampa time at age five. Not having any toys at all. If you have more than one child, uh, that the children shouldn't be distracting others. That may mean that they sit some distance from each other. There shouldn't be any food there. And if you're not chanting Jampa, you have to be silent. So I always did have rules for Jampa. If you don't want to chant Jampa, that's fine. You can just sit there. But you can't play with toys, and you can't talk, and you can't do something else. This is our meditation time. If you don't want to engage in meditation, that's all right. You're not forced to engage in meditation. But you may not be doing something else. Keep in mind that if you let your children do something else, you are rewarding them for not chanting. Think about this. If they say, I don't want to chant, you say, okay, you can go play. 
Same with like listening to a class. If you say, if you're not going to sit quietly in a class, you may leave the temple and run around the grounds and play. That means you are rewarding them for not participating. Does everybody understand this? So it has to be, if you don't want to chant Japa, you can just sit. And you can have your Japa time very short. You know, you can have a two-minute Japa time if you want. Just you don't have to have a 20-minute or an hour Japa time. Whatever it is, this is our time for Japa. And there should be a serious mood in the idea that there's no silliness, but it should be a joyful mood. It shouldn't be silly, but it should be joyful and light. All right, now, as far as the question as to whether or not children should chant on beads. Now, this is my opinion, but it's my opinion based on quotes and discussions with Shiva Prabhupada. So, they would, um, Prabhupada would generally say that the children should not chant on beads, but then when adults took away beads from children who liked to chant on beads, Prabhupada was upset. Which reminds me of one of my favorite quotes from Shiva Prabhupada in regard to something completely different where he said, just use your common sense, and if you don't have any, ask someone who does. So make this individual. Make this individual. My own rule was Japa time was a set amount of time and not a set amount of rounds for children under the age of 12. And we will see what were like reasons for that. So I found sometimes restless children become more controlled when they have beads. After all, that's the purpose of beads. They're a meditation aid. So I found that for some children, they really function like that as a meditation aid. Some children, if they have beads, just play with the beads. The beads aren't a meditation aid. They're a toy. Or uh, they may just skip beads and chant very poorly on the beads, and they may chant nicely without the beads. And that, this may change. You know, you may have a child who just plays with beads and swings them around or skips over the beads and doesn't chant nicely on them, and maybe six months later they do chant nicely on beads. So beads work with them individually. Do they chant nicely on beads and do they like to have beads? Let them have beads. They don't chant nicely on beads, they don't want to have beads, don't give them beads. And this can change from one time to another. It's not a rule. They have to have bees. Or they cannot have bees. Okay. Um, what I found that I mentioned here, my own experience uh, over, I, I guess I did the morning program with children for about seven, of the 27 years I worked with, with Gurukul and Nursery School, 17 of those years I was teaching the morning program. Again, that means somewhere between 15 to 30 children I was taking through the morning program. And my experience was many times children would chant maybe one round on beads. Let's say we had a 20-minute job at time. They might chant one round on beads and then hand me the beads and chant the rest of the time without beads. And I found a lot of children did that kind of spontaneously. Um, and I say here until at least 9 or 10, and I'd say maybe even 12, Just have a, I would have a very casual attitude. Do you chant on beads or do you not chant on beads? Just... I just think it's irrelevant and according to that particular children. I, if you're using beads, again, teach the proper way to finger the beads and watch the children. I have seen parents chant with their children where the parents are only absorbed in their own japa. 
you're not watching how the children chant, and the children are getting all kinds of bad habits. So if your children are going to use beads, you've got to watch how they use the beads. That's another thing. If you're not willing to do that, don't give them beads. Okay, if they're just chanting like half the mantra on a bead, or they're skipping beads, they're fingering them badly, they're putting them on the floor, they're putting them in their mouth, they're playing with them, and the parent is oblivious because the parent is just there in ecstasy in their own japa, don't give them beads. Okay, give them beads only if you are willing to train them. Or if they're old enough that you can give them some instruction at another time and they'll follow it. So this is a question of being honest. Uh, this is in general with anything, but looking at it specifically with parenting. Don't do things just because you think that it would be great to do them, but you're not actually willing to do them. You know, if I make a plan, I'm going to do this because it would be a great thing to do, but I'm not really willing to do it. Guess what? I won't do it. And then the only thing that will happen is I'll feel guilty about not doing it. Therefore, we say the great can be the enemy of the good. In discussing over-endeavoring the nectar of devotion, Prabhupada said, don't do devotional things that you can't maintain. So far, far better to do something so-called lesser that you can maintain than something so-called greater that you can't maintain. Much, 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 much better. This is in general true across the board in, in all of our dealings, material and spiritual. It's one of the di- don't over endeavor for things that you can't maintain. And don't just mundane things. It's interesting. Nectar devotion. Prophet's not talking about mundane things, he's talking about spiritual things. So if you say, you know, I'm going to sit there and watch exactly how my child fingers the beads and how they say the mantra because that's what a good parent will do. But you're not going to do that. It's not who you are. Then don't pretend. Just don't do it. And it's okay. Give you permission. It's okay. It's all right. Have your kid chant without beads until they're old enough that you can give them an instruction and they'll follow it without your supervision. Okay? Does that make sense to everybody? Yes? Otherwise, the child's going to be trained in bad habits. We say practice makes perfect. Well, good practice makes perfect. Practice in general simply makes permanent. If you're practicing wrong, like that Prabhu this morning, Lord knows how long he's been chanting like that. Yes, the Lord does know how long he's been chanting like that. So, you know, if you're practicing it wrong, then it becomes an entrenched habit that's so difficult to break. Um, and I talk about you might want to keep the beads, especially for young children. You might want to keep the beads yourself and just distribute them a job time rather than have your child responsible for the beads. So you know yourself, you know, do I have a child who's going to take care of his or her stuff or do I have a child who doesn't take care of his or her stuff? So then we're going to look at when children are disrespectful during japa. And this is not about whether or not they chant japa. This is behavior unrelated to whether or not they're chanting japa. Okay, that we'll look at in a minute. 
So we suggest, if at all possible, do not correct the child during Java time. And do not correct the child during Java place, which has to do, again, with that positive emotional experiences. We don't want to set up a negative association with Japa activity, Japa place, or Japa time. So unless the disrespect is extremely serious, leave it till later. If it's very serious, I would remove the child from that place. Take them out of that place, take them to a different part of the house, a different part of the temple, and then correct them there. Uh, so otherwise, you may just make a note of something you want to talk to them about later. Now, here again was my instructions for teachers that a very dis a very disruptive student might be removed from Java class and give them a private Java class later. So then, looking at next. So, what do you do if children are respectful but they're not participating? Just give encouragement, give love, and give help, but again, not force. Now, you can have all kinds of different techniques to help motivate children to chant Java. And here is where different people are going to have some very uh, strongly held opinions. So some devotees will say, you should never use any system of rewards or incentives to encourage Japa, and other people will say it's okay. Uh, I don't see anything particularly from Guru, Sadhu, or Shastra either for or against. So I say this is an individual decision, and again, you've got to do what you're comfortable with. What I've seen is that any kind of methods of incentives or rewards are damaging if you're using those incentives and rewards like you're training an animal. And there can be very wonderful if they're simply symbolic of your relationship. You know, all of us, we talked about doing meaningful service. All of us want to know that we are valued. It's one of the main markers of being loved, that we are valued. And if you have a relationship of love and trust with your children, they will naturally want to do things that please you. It's one of the main effects of a love and trust relationship. People want to please those they love and trust. How do we indicate to someone that we are pleased? We can say, I am pleased. We can smile, but we can also do something that's symbolic that we are pleased. A lot of the exchanges of love are simply symbolic representations of our feelings. Just like Krishna says, give me a leaf, a flower, fruit, or water. These things are very much symbols of love even between human beings. It's like you're all giving me something to drink. You're giving me flowers. Okay? These are symbols. Giving me a chair to sit on, giving me a place to stay. You're not doing these things for me as some kind of reward or incentive. How ridiculous would that be? I mean, 
be absurd. Or we thought we're going to get you to come to Mauritius and preach here by giving you a bed. But it's a symbol of love, you understand? So if you use incentives like that, I just like I told you, my, my doctoral thesis was on job satisfaction motivation. And uh, unless a person is in poverty, money is not a motivator for job satisfaction. If you're in poverty, but once, you, once you're not in poverty, once you have your basic, basic necessities in life, people's feeling of satisfaction at work is not in relation to money. But money can be a motivator if it's linked to something else. Money can be a motivator if it's linked to some kind of recognition or appreciation of work. If it symbolizes recognition. If it symbolizes, yes, we're very happy with you. So it's like that. If you give some kind of an incentive, let's say you have a chart, and every day your child chants nice job and you put a star on the chart. You know, nobody's really working for a gold star. I'm not coming here for the coconut water and the bed. Seriously. You know? If that's not my incentive for this. But it's nice to get a gold star. We all feel like that. Everybody feels like that. To get some, some symbolic gesture that, yes, I'm pleased with what you're doing, and I value what you're doing. So if you use incentives and games in that mood, I have not found them to be damaging. If you use them in the mood that you're doing Joppa for a reward, then it's damaging, and actually that will be in the long run demotivating. Trying to get anyone to do things for external rewards when the rewards are seen in and of themselves decreases person's motivation. Yeah, there's tons of studies in that regard. It's, just, it's not the way to get people to do things. So if you say, you know, if you chant good job, but you can play video games, please don't do that. Okay? Uh, but some sort of incentive uh, thing maybe. And exactly what that could be, you know, that you have to work that out with your child and your particular situation. But I have found things like that to be affected. You know, I find things like that to be affected with myself. What motivates me, and this may not motivate you, is crossing things off on a list. I don't know why, but I find it very motivating. I will even like to write something on a list while I'm doing it so I can get the satisfaction of crossing it off. It's a motivator for me. I had interesting, um, I use Google Calendar for my schedule. And as I mentioned before with meditation, they rolled out a new feature so that you could set goals. So for many years, I would take a brisk walk every day. And then I'd kind of gotten out of the habit. I was trying to get back in the habit. So I just put it in my Google goals, taking a half an hour walk at least five days a week. And then it pops it up on my phone. Walk today. And it is so satisfying to click did it. 
Now it's interesting, that's something I want to do anyway. I really like walking, my health is so much better, my energy is so much better, it makes a huge difference in my life to get exercise on a daily basis. But you know what? That wasn't always enough. It was nice to be able to say, did it. You know, even with Chani Japa, when you pull down that bead, and then you pull them up at the end, that's a little kind of incentive, isn't it? Isn't it? Yes? Am I right? Okay, so you can have simple incentives like that for your kids. Your kids can have a little chart. can even be a chart they make for themselves. How many minutes did I chant? Did I sit nicely? Did I say the mantra clearly? Was I feeling Krishna's presence? Was I able to meditate? You, know, you can have them make a little chart that they take off for themselves and give themselves a gold star. And you, you could even have them give themselves some kind of an incentive. Something that they want to do, that if I take everything off, okay, I'll reward myself with something. I, I, we are really wired like that, aren't we? Yeah. Also, we, do, we tend not to do things that nobody notices. At least we have to notice it. If it's something that nobody's noticing, nobody's measuring, even if I'm not noticing it, I'm not likely to do it. So some sort of recognition, some sort of acknowledgement of value is very helpful for most of us. Okay, and I give an example of a Japa race here. That was something I did in a school uh, with very young children, like five, six years old. Okay, now how do we decide how long we're going to chant Japa? Uh, first of all, do we decide by the number of rounds or we decide by the number of time? My own experience is time is much better than rounds for anybody under the age of 12. My experience with asking children to chant a certain number of rounds when they're young is that you will simply encourage them to cheat. There may be some exceptions, but that's my general experience. Finished the round! Uh, it was only two minutes. I've just seen it over and over again. And they'll, they'll skip these, they'll slur the mantra, they'll do anything to say I finished my round. And if you say we're going to chant for 10 minutes, then it's, it's very clear. Um, at my oldest son's house, they have a program where as part of a, a general incentive system, the children can voluntarily do any spiritual activity for 15 minutes in the morning. They can do what they cannot do as they like, but they get some points for that. And we got a timer. We got a 15-minute timer. I she got a couple of them. Oh, they were cheap. And they were, I got, took me a while to find ones that were unbreakable. And the first one was not unbreakable. Uh, but the kids loved that. that see, that's another personal incentive. And it was a big timer. It was a sand timer. You know, 15-minute sand timer. They loved it. And they, they would just sit and turn that timer and get out a book about Krishna or get out Joppa beads or they polish the DD silver or something like that. And they would love to see that timer go down and, oh, I did something for 15 minutes. So you can have something like that. I, I really, really suggest time. After 12, you can say, okay, number of rounds. And then some kids are different. You know, some kids are still not going to be ready at 12 and some kids might be ready at 10. You have to see in particular child. Um, and when I write in this program uh, here, 
Uh, this, these particular set of instructions are from a book which we have as one of our free downloads. It's the festival book in the children's section. This was designed for schools in the UK that have a government-mandated collective worship program of 15 minutes every morning. The government in the UK requires all schools to have 15 minutes of collective worship. And in the particular program that another uh, devotee, Tark and I, put together for those particular schools, we had Japa be two minutes of the 15-minute program. So we had Japa, we had Kirtan, we had a story, and we had activities. Um, if you're interested in that, as far as your own kind of morning sadhana program, but that's what was designed for young children, but it's up there in the, in the four children's section of the free downloads. Um, what I did as a miracle teacher was I had for children age five to seven, they had 10 minutes of japa. For children age seven and up, it was 20 minutes. And then if, if the older students were chanting rounds, which I started to encourage about age 13 or 14, if they didn't do it on their own right, uh, then they would chant longer for once. So we could take just a few minutes if anybody has any questions. Yes. What about making kids promise they should chant a certain number of rounds? Sounds like a very bad idea. In fact, I raise my kids and with the the ethical principle that you don't use the word promise. I would say promise is for marriage and initiation. That's it. Don't use it for anything else. That, that's Irving Davy Dusty's personal ethical system. Don't go around. It, 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 it's, that's me. That's, that's not a Shastra conjunction. That's just my personal opinion. Is that anytime I heard kids, I said, sorry, promises from marriage initiation, it's not, not for other people. Let them promise when they're ready to promise they're at the fire they're doing. Thank you. Yes? Exactly what I told you to do. How did I personally do it? This is what I personally did. I mean, with some testing and changing over the years. Generally, we took our children to the temple. So my husband and I were real temple people. So until they were five, then they just, I mean, when they were babies, babies, we tried to get them to sleep during the when they were infants. That didn't always work, but that was our effort. And then uh, after that, I would bring quiet toys. But I wasn't getting them to change up. I would play with them or talk with them. You know, it was absolutely had to during my, my job was my job. They had some quiet toys they could play with that I had only four job. And then once they were five, they were in the group pool. They were, that was part of the program that they would change job in the group Yes. Did 
I what about television? I didn't hear the first this, this fans don't turn the fans off, but I couldn't um, understand what you said at first. Something about television. The living rooms of Mauritius have TVs. Most living rooms all over the world have TVs, not only in Mauritius. It's usually good to have a separate room or a separate part of a room, yes. The children sitting in front of the TV and chanting. But the TV's off. Do you have your TVs on top of the TV? I've seen that in some houses, actually. I have. There's a TV and on top this morning time. I remember uh, when Devoni Gurkul gave me a, a really funny book about if archaeologists were to dig up our current civilization 2,000 years from now and they would decide that the television was our god installed on the altars in everybody's house. Anyway, now everybody has a television in their pocket. They don't need one up on the altar. Uh, best thing is if you have a part of your house that is for worship. That, that is the ideal. You know, maybe if you have an extremely small house, that's not so possible. But the best thing, I mean, the ideal thing is you have a room that's for the Lord. Most of us can't afford that, but if you have a room that's for the Lord. Of course, some places I've been, the room that's for the Lord is up on the third floor or the fourth floor. Nobody goes there. The Lord is just lonely up there in his room. So you don't want to do that. <laughs> Just remember that Krishna is a person. And it's nice if he can have his own space and it be a space where you can do some worship and chanting. You know, a lot of people have just like an altar in their kitchen just for offerings, and it's not a place where you can really chant. I mean, I've been to some devotees' house where they have one room with the deities and another room for Java. devotee's house I've been to several times. Where they have the temple room with the deities and they have another room with just like quotes about the holy name and pictures of holy places and paintings of like Haridas Thakur and cushions and it's their meditation room separate from their temple room. And, you know, I, I, I personally like to chant with the deities rather than another room. But it is very nice to have a particular place for japa and worship. And this has to do with the whole trigger thing we talked about in the last class. That just like certain foods immediately trigger a certain emotional state, well, certain places do too. And if you, if you associate that place, just like we have a bed, and we associate our bed with sleeping, and, you know, they tell people who are insomniacs, don't do non-sleeping things in your bed. People who have trouble sleeping, they'll tell them, you know, don't watch TV in your bed. Only associate your bed with sleeping, you understand? So it's, if you have a place, this is our place to chant japa. This is our place for meditation. 
it's much easier for the mind. It's much easier for the mind. But the mind accepts, okay, this is my, my japa place. This is my japa time. Just like we have a place for eating. And there's, there's a reason why we tend to relate certain places with certain activities. This is the place where I work. I mean, we have, we have some problem today with computers, where computers, for many of us, is our workplace. But it may also be our social place. It may also be our entertainment place. And so it makes it very hard for people to focus on work. Yes, if your computer is all those. My son was just talking to me yesterday and saying how his job requires him to have a work computer. They don't allow him to use his personal laptop for work. And that's why. They don't want you answering your own emails and checking Facebook while you're at work. So this, this is my work computer. And you open up your work computer and I'm supposed to work. So if you want, if you want a similar kind of thing, same with a certain time. If you can have Japa at a regulated time, it, it so much helps the mind. It's such a help that the mind knows, oh, this is my Japa time. I'm supposed to change Japa now. And it behaves better. You know, I, I worry about people changing Japa looking at the empty TV screen. Hey, you can put a picture of Krishna up on the list. That's the only place that you have. Anything else? Okay, we're going to take another 15-minute break. So let's say 4.40. Okay, and then our last seminar for today will be on Shiva Prabhupada's 12 principles about education. How those specifically relate to, to Gurukula, but they're all things that you can apply in the training of your own children. Thank you. Shiva Prabhupada Kija.